Well, good afternoon. Hope you enjoyed your 4th of July weekend. Uh, we're certainly glad you're here worshiping with us today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Philippians. We'll be in verse 9. Um, before we read that, I want to remind you that Paul has just shared with them how often he prays to God with thankfulness because of the Philippians. He's encouraged them, reminding them that God began a spiritual work in their lives and encouraging them that God will bring that work to completion. He's also expressed just how much he loves them, that he yearns for them with the same affection uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ has. Uh, what we will look at today then is a further explanation of Paul's prayer for the Christians uh, in Philippi. So follow along silently with me as we begin reading in verse 9. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we come to worship you, often fighting the many distractions that seek to fill our minds. Worries, fear, anger, sadness, excitements for something other than you, and thousands of other things. Please push those out of our mind for a time, so that we can focus solely on you, on your word, on the worth and value of you. May we hear your word, and may it change us. We ask that you would yoke our knowledge to our practice, making us ever more like you, who have redeemed us for your pleasure and for your glory. In the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Like I mentioned before, what we have here is Paul revealing the content of what he prays for the Philippians. This was a prayer prayed to God at an actual time for a particular group of people. However, notice it's not a situational prayer, but a, a general prayer. What I mean is it's not a prayer for so-and-so's patience in dealing with their crazy mother-in-law. It's a general prayer for the work he desires to see God doing in the life of Christians. So here we are some 2,000 years later as, <clears throat> as we expound God's word. We can be certain that this is a prayer for the church in Manhattan as well. We should desire this and ask God for it to be true of us. At the most basic level, this is a prayer for sanctification. Sanctification is just a theological word that means growing to be more like Jesus. So it's a prayer that we would be people who God is changing. Now, we know that we are counted holy because of our God-given faith in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. But our lives are a constant work in progress. As we learn more of what God desires the life of a Christian to look like in practice, let me remind you that where you come from or where you are today in your Christian walk is much less important than where you're going. As we look at this prayer, I want you to notice how it cascades down like a multi-level fountain. As the first part is true, it overflows into the second part and so on. Let's look at verse 9. Remember it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is the prayer that their love would abound. That word, abound. It doesn't just mean to grow. It means to have an excess, to possess an abundance. 
It's a picture of their love multiplying in such a way that it's overflowing in excess. A similar desire is seen in Philipp in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, which reads, May the Lord make you, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. In that same letter, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-10, Paul encourages the church who was loving well to love better. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Their lives have been a visual testimony throughout the region to the difference knowing Jesus makes. As people observe them and they see their love for each other, they see it. You know, he, he could have just left it at, hey guys, good job. But that's not what Paul does. He encourages them. Let's not be content with that. Let's seek to love more and more. What I want you to see for us, for, for our covenant community, is that our love should always be growing. We as a church are a family because we've been adopted by the Father. There should be a warmth between us. As a young church community, I really do believe we are doing a great job of loving each other. I've seen the way you care for each other. It's, it's great. It really is. Now, let's do it more and more and more and more and better and better. Love is often a vague word. Today, we often think of it as just a feeling. Love, love is that, but it's more than that. It's active. Love does something, or it's just warm feelings or sentimentalism. Even the most well-known verse in all of Scripture shows us love is active. John 3.16 doesn't say that God so loved the world that he just felt love, man, or that he got tingles, you know. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There was an action that showed his love, an action that cost him greatly. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, some people are easy to love, but many are just difficult to love. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by how difficult it is for you to love people. That's normal. You're normal. Loving people, particularly people who are different from you, that's a work the Holy Spirit must do in us. So already we've seen that what Paul desires for the church in Philippi, and ultimately what God desires for Manhattan Press is for our love to overflow more and more. Not just love as it, it is generally or culturally defined, but as the Bible itself defines love. Which in our immediate context, it is made quite clear love must be driven by knowledge and discernment. These two terms are quite simple, really. Knowledge is correct information. Discernment is the application of that correct information. We often think that love and knowledge don't go together. We tend to trend one way or the other. We want to say, you know, I'm about knowledge and truth or... You know, I'm, I'm really about love. Sometimes in Scripture we even get the idea that knowledge and love are antithesis to each other. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, you might remember, it says knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Paul there is responding to a particular situation of food offered to idols. He's responding to the Corinthians' assumption that everyone knows you shouldn't eat food offered to idols. So without going too far into this, understand that the point is that knowledge that the knowledge the Corinthians are appealing to has left them prideful and lacking in love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. So rather than knowledge leading them to love, 
it's led them to pride. What we see in our text is God does not give us the option of being about knowledge or being about love. We are to be about love that is built upon knowledge and applied through discernment. Let's consider knowledge first. Fifteen times in Paul's letter he uses this word, epigenosis. It's unique in that it's spiritual knowledge. It's not how many planets are in our solar system type of knowledge. It's knowledge of God's will, of, of Jesus, of sin, of who God is. It's spiritual things. It's knowledge that is gained through studying the Word of God. As God gives us the ability to understand His Word, <clears throat> and as we believe His Word. In Hosea 4.6, God is speaking, and He says this. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What this means is, if we don't know what is true about God, and the love and grace He has for His people, we'll believe a million different hopeless lies about the world we live in and the purpose of our life. This prayer for spiritual knowledge is common in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul, Paul writes to them, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In Philemon 1.6 we read, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Both of these are prayers for the same knowledge Paul is talking about. Spiritual knowledge. So, <clears throat> if this prayer is calling for our love to abound with knowledge, we must be able to answer the question, what does it mean to love with knowledge? It's quite simple, really. It means for every relationship in your life, you stop and you ask, according to the knowledge of God revealed in the scriptures, how am I supposed to love this person or these people? If you're dating or courtship or whatever you want to call it, what does the Bible say about this relationship? If you're married, what does the knowledge of God in scripture reveal regarding how you are to love your spouse rightly? How you are to relate to them? It's the same for all our relationships. Neighbors, co-workers, bosses, classmates, even enemies. It's a simple question of what does the Bible say regarding how we are to love? It's simple to understand. I, I think we all find the reality is it's difficult to actually do. I read an article in Sports Illustrated last week about an experiment the Houston Astros team is doing, um, currently doing. It's similar to what was done in Moneyball. They're using the knowledge of mathematics and probability to make every decision regarding the team, no matter how difficult. One of the main guys driving this experiment spent his summers during college in Tahoe. What he did there was work as a blackjack dealer. It's a card game that's usually played for gambling. Regarding blackjack, he says, <clears throat> What you do in any game situation to win is supported very well by rules of probability that most people playing know. He was able to watch millions of games each summer, with immediate feedback one after another, and what surprised him was how many people went against the knowledge they had regarding what was the best decision because of a mere feeling. The idea that somehow they knew better. He commented on this saying, human beings do not always make decisions that serve their own long-term self-interest. Even when they are equipped with a wealth of experience and knowledge of the mathematical probabilities that ought to guide their choices. I don't tell you this to make you a better blackjack player. I tell you because I hope you see the connection. Often, <clears throat> often we struggle in our lives, not because we don't know what God desires for our lives, 
but because we're following a feeling instead of the spiritual knowledge we have been given and, and learned from the Word of God. We know that we need time in prayer, but we choose otherwise. We know that this movie won't build up our faith, but we watch it anyway. We know God is of supreme worth, but we pour ourselves out for something else. On the flip side, we know from Scripture that God's yoke is light and His grace is real. Yet we often seek to earn His love. All despite having the knowledge that we can't earn God's love. As well as the knowledge that we don't need to try because if we're in Christ, we already have the love of God. As we seek to follow Christ, we must remember that. Knowledge without love falls short of actual Christianity. The same is true for love without knowledge. We said before that knowledge is correct information and discernment is the wise application of that correct information. The Greek word Paul uses for discernment does not show up anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, you may know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. However, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament commonly used at the time of Jesus and the disciples called the Septuagint. In the Greek version of the book of Proverbs, this word shows up 20 times. And Proverbs is about practical wisdom. If knowledge helps us answer the question of what is right according to the Word of God, discernment helps us put that into practice in a variety of ways. People are often said to be discerning when they can use knowledge they have an observation of a situation to correctly identify the character of a given individual. I can trust this person, or maybe it's I can't trust this person. Now remember, in our text today, discernment is in the context of our love abounding more and more. How do we take what we know to be true, that is spiritual knowledge, that is given to us in the scriptures and applied in a way that we love others? For example, we know that Matthew 5.44 tells us to love our enemies. That's the knowledge. The sermon then asked the question, what is the best way for me to love my enemies? Here's how we answer that question. We take what we know from Scripture, turn the other cheek, Matthew 5. Don't rejoice if an enemy falls, Proverbs 24. Don't seek your own revenge, Romans 12, etc. And then we pray to God, asking for wisdom on how to do this. We also pray for the harder part, for the strength to actually do this. It's the same for every relationship you have. We dig, in, we dig into the scripture for wisdom and we pray for discernment. Verse 9 is the first layer of this cascading prayer. Verse 10 is the next layer. This is what should happen as a result of verse 9 being true. Follow along as I read verse 10 again. It says, So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. His desire is that because we have love, with knowledge and discernment, we will then approve what is excellent. When we approve something as excellent, we mean we've examined it and find it to be of superior worth. Excellent technically doesn't even mean good. It means better, to be above what is normal. Those things we approve as excellent are the things that we give priority to in our lives. It's not always as, as simple as good or bad, though. It might be determining what is best from what is second best. See, life is often one decision after another. What should I eat today? What should I wear today? What should I do today? We spend our time on what we find to be priorities. If money is your top priority, then family and church and service to others and everything else are seen as less than excellence and thus given less priority. For us, I ask, are we approving what is excellence? 
We're valuing knowing Jesus Christ above everything else. Are we doing what is best with our money, with our time, with our gifts? Uh, you know, there's a, a place for watching sports and reading novels and playing angry birds. And But the reality is those things ought not be our priority. Approving what is excellent is about not wasting your life on trivial things. Still in verse 10, we see that Paul's hope for them is to be pure and blameless. In our culture, when we hear the word purity, we often think exclusively sexually purity. The Bible is very clear about the importance, sexual uh, the importance of sexual purity in many places. However, that's not what is in view here. The verse, this verse is also not suggesting that we are to be perfect people. None of us is perfect. And none of us will be perfect until we dwell with Christ in eternity. Purity here is about our lives not being hid from God or each other. That we not be hypocrites. James Montgomery Boyce told a great story about the purchase of pottery in the ancient world. The best pottery was very thin and sunlight could be seen through it. Because it was thin, it would often crack during the firing of the clay. There were dishonest shopkeepers who would fill these cracks with wax to hide the cracks in the pottery. <clears throat> Why shopper, shoppers could see these cracks when holding them up to the light. Eventually, honest dealers marked their best pottery with the words, Sen Sarah, meaning without wax. That's, of course, where we get our word for sincere. Our lives should be pure in the sense that our love for God and others is sincere, real. That means we will need to go to God often and ask for Him to give us sincere love for Him and sincere love for others. The other word here is blameless. When we say someone is blameless, we don't mean perfect and sinless. We mean they're not the reason something happened. If you are walking on a level floor with no cracks or holes and on it <clears throat> or in it, and you trip and you fall, the floor is blameless. It can't be the reason for your tripping. It was level. The same idea is at play in verse here, here in this verse. We do not want our lives to be the cause of someone else to stumble. We want to live blameless in the sense that we can't be the reason for their stumbling. It's a different word, but the same idea we'll see in chapter 2 when Paul warns the Philippians to not complain or grumble so that, so that they don't lead others into sin as a result of their complaining. Look at this last phrase in verse 10. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. <clears throat> this is pointing to a coming event. It's pointing to the return of Jesus Christ. Knowing this is coming should shape our lives, our motives. We're waiting for that moment. For some, that's a scary thought. In high school, it was not uncommon for me to get into trouble. On school photo day, I, I held up a rubber chicken. We had 800 students in my grade, so I was banking on no one noticing until they developed the photo. Well, they noticed. I remember waiting in the principal's office to find out what the punishment would be. It seemed to take forever, as I just sat, and I waited, and I waited, and the longer I waited, for that moment, the more fear I had. The day of Christ should not cause that sort of fear in us. The reason it shouldn't cause fear is because of the confidence that we have <clears throat> that our sins have been forgiven in Christ by grace through faith. When we think of the day of Christ, it should, however, change the way we live, the way we make decisions. We should have that day in mind when planning our lives, we should be asking questions like, will it matter on the day of Christ if I am the foremost expert in my field? No. 
Will it matter on the day of Christ if I have $5 million in my bank account? No. But will it matter on the day of Christ if I've been, been a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Yes. Will it matter on the day of Christ if I've used the grace God's given to be a light in the darkness? Absolutely. Now, it's going to take biblical knowledge and God-given discernment to answer the millions of variations on that question. Will it matter in the day of Christ? Verse 11 then speaks to our being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is not about our internal righteousness found in Christ. It might sound odd even, but this is about what is seen externally. <clears throat> the fruit of righteousness is what I can see in your life that tells me there is something different about you. That shows that the Spirit of God is present in your life. Kindness, interest in others, love, patience, sacrifice, selflessness. It's good works. Since God has given us the illustration of a fruit tree in this text, let's use that to better understand this. An orange tree has been designed and made by God to be different, to produce tasty orange fruit on its branches. The reason it grows fruit is because God made it an orange tree. You have been made righteous by Christ. Because of that, God will produce the fruit of righteousness in your life. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but fruit will grow. Desire that. Seek nourishment for your soul so, that, so as to see fruit in your life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a verse I love because it so clearly displays the unmerited grace by which God has saved us. It says, For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't boast in your salvation. Because forgiveness of sin is 100% a work of God. We ought not forget, though, that the very next verse gives direction for our lives as a result of the redemption God has earned for us. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2 reads, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If God had made you an orange tree, right now I'd be encouraging you to bring forth oranges. But God did not make you an orange tree. What he has done is redeemed you in righteousness. So let us be encouraged to bring forth the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. How do we do that? We could try to rely on our own strength or fake it for a period of time. I bet I could fool most of you into believing I have an orange tree in my yard just by stapling oranges to a tree. Not Matt, but most of you would fall for it. It wouldn't take long for you to get a little closer to that tree and see something wasn't right, that it wasn't real. The way real fruit is produced is clear in our text. It comes through Jesus Christ, to, through our being connected to him. And that's exactly what we see Jesus say in John 15:5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, that's connection, he it is that bears fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, we need Jesus, not just for our salvation, but for our lives to be fruitful. We need the means of grace he's given. We need our roots to be soaked in the grace of God so that our branches can bring forth fruit to the glory of God and for the benefit of the world that he has planted us, planted us in. When we are satisfied in Jesus, it's easier to be, easier to be patient with a difficult person. When we have drank from the word of God, our heart, 
is better prepared to love someone like Jesus has called us to love. Now I said at the beginning this prayer cascades. All this flowing to one conclusion, the ultimate goal. Our text says, to the glory and praise of God. The reason Paul prays this for the Philippians and the reason we want to see this be true for us is simple. So that God would be glorified and that all praise would be directed at Him. May this be our goal, our, our real, honest-to-goodness goal. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us of this same idea. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Sometimes we think the whole goal of redemption is that we will be spared the punishment of hell. That's something we have to be eternally thankful for, but that isn't the goal of redemption. The purpose of redemption is that God would be glorified and that we would find joy in Him. So this prayer for the Philippians is the prayer for Manhattan Press. That we would have love for God and love for others in excess. That we would... that that our love would be built upon spiritual knowledge and wise discernment, that we would be found pure and blameless when Christ returns, and ultimately that God would be given all glory and all praise for the work that He has done in our lives. Let us pray. Glorious God, may Paul's prayer be our prayer. Please make our love to abound more and more. Give us knowledge and discernment. Give us knowledge from your word regarding what is right and Give us discernment to best apply that knowledge, even when it's difficult, when we think we know better. Please produce in us the fruit of righteousness. Lead us to approve what is excellent. God, give us the joy that comes from obedience to your word, so that we won't believe the lies of sin, <clears throat> the lies <clears throat> of sin, which tell us there is lasting pleasure to be had apart from you. Oh God, we know better. Renew our sense of your love for us and grow our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.